Welcome to Digital Health Unfiltered. I'm Sudipto Srivastava. And I am Nick Jeans. In this podcast, we share our insights from the cutting edge of health IT. So I recently watched several of Clay Christensen's uh, talks again. You know, Clay, for those who may not be familiar with his work, he was a Harvard professor um, and he developed the theory of disruptive innovation, which actually has been called the most influential business idea of the 21st century. Anyway, the spirit of uh, what he was talking about is back in the day, the doctor would visit you at home and try to diagnose what was wrong. But then over time, there was more centralization of technology, resources, people, etc., and hospitals started getting bigger. And more and more patients had to go to the doctor instead of the other way around. And then he talks about the fact that through technology, we can actually drive more and more complex healthcare solutions into the home, the patient's home. So Nick, I thought we would talk a little bit about it. And, um, and it's not just about technology, but also the extra personalized nature of the encounter that happens when someone is seeing you in your home. Yeah, you know, sure. And it's easy for us to get engrossed by the technology, by the networks, the the monitoring solutions, the business models, and to overlook the vital human element. And and there's a really immense value in seeing the patients in their own home environment. Not only is it much more convenient for them, especially elderly patients that uh, maybe have difficulty getting around, but uh, you get a snapshot of their lives, you get a snapshot of their risk factors, you can see their social determinants of health, some of them at least. We, we coach our, our trainees that are learning telemedicine to say, you know, explore the space, take a look into the patient's fridge, see if it's well stocked, take a look into their medicine cabinet, see if it's well organized. You can actually learn a lot. But um, who, is, who is doing this? Who is the one that's going into the patient's home? Doesn't necessarily have to be the doctor. Uh, and whether we're talking about a community paramedicine program or some of these new hospital at home programs, can't overstate the value of having just any trained healthcare staff uh, visit the patient's home. Now, and a hospital home might be a great example of this. In that case, it's uh, usually visiting nurses that are going in and, uh, and evaluating the patient after they've been, quote unquote, admitted to the hospital at home. The model here is that a patient uh, presents to an emergency department has a acute illness, and they need some kind of therapy that's going to last, you know, several days, maybe even a week or two, but um, they don't necessarily need to be hospitalized in the hospital for it. They, they need just someone to monitor them closely until they get better. And, and if they can be sent home for that monitoring, that's, that's a big win. Yeah, you know, I, I agree. And, and the goal really seems to be aligned um, almost as a win-win-win. Yes, I used it th- three times, you know, for multiple parties. And what I mean really about that is many times when we look at sort of the trifecta of the patient, the provider, and the payers, they're always winners and losers. But in this case, it seems that everyone benefits. You know, the patient, of course, because they get to recover in a more familiar and comfortable environment. You know, the payers benefit because studies have shown that recovery at home saves money and hospitals, you know, who actually get to focus on higher acuity patients and like, you know, expand the scope of what they can do and, and innovate. Yeah. And I, I remember very well in my training, I, I kind of started 
with some notions that turned out to be incorrect. I thought that maybe some people wanted to be in the hospital. Uh, you know, you get to see a lot of specialists, you get to have a lot done, a lot of testing and therapy done in a short matter of time. You get like three square meals, et cetera. But really very few patients want that. So what they want to do is get better at home among their loved ones in their familiar environment. Uh, and that's, that's really what hospital at home permits and makes possible. And uh, when I get on the phone, I do some community paramedicine calls. I, we dispatch paramedics to visit select patients that are part of a program. They're, they're high utilizers. They're sick. They've got a lot of comorbidities. Paramedic uh, gets to their house, evaluates them, calls, calls me as the medical control doc. And uniformly, the patients do not want to be hospitalized. They, they want, if possible, to be able to, to stay in place. That's interesting. You know, in, I guess I wonder why it hasn't scaled up here. Um, like with all the benefits that we're talking about, you know, and I was looking into this thing, um, Googling things, of course, uh, in preparation for this uh, discussion. And I found out that a doctor by the name of Dr. Bruce Leff from Johns Hopkins started this program almost back in 1990, 30 plus years ago. So it took him 30 years to get that concept upgraded, to figure out the plans, do studies and so on. And an organization that you and I are familiar with, Mount Sinai in New York City, they actually started a program back in 2014 based on a CMMI grant. So it's just been such a slow moving progress. Your thoughts? Yeah. Um, our friend Linda DeCherry just testified in front of the Senate Finance Committee about uh, the program she runs and how it's growing and, and how it has benefited from some of the changing standards as a result of the pandemic. It became a lot easier to uh, identify more patients qualified for hospital at home. It became easier to enroll them. Uh, and, uh, and it's definitely uh, helped the program take off. You know, I mean, we're talking about the U.S., but what about other countries? Are there any models uh, out there, anything that can help pave the path for us, us here in the U.S.? Yeah, good question. It seems to work well in other countries like uh, England, Israel, and Australia. I found a lot of stats about Australia that uh, you know, a lot of metropolitan and regional hospitals have their own hospital-at-home programs. They're at the point where more than 5% of all hospitalizations are actually hospital-at-home. And uh, for specific conditions like uh, DVT, uh, more than half of the patients that are, you know, quote unquote, hospitalized are actually sent to their home to be hospitalized, which is uh, a really significant uh, fraction of patients. But, you know, I've read these interviews with U.S. insurance executives and stuff that they're, they're not going to reimburse hospital at home until it really becomes widespread and I got to wonder, I mean, surely they must know that it'll never become widespread until there's more payer reimbursement for it. I, I wonder if we're finally upon that age now, maybe because of the changing standards from the COVID, or maybe just having ubiquitous video and maybe some technical familiarity among the population. It, it is a lot easier now than it was even a few years ago to just, when I see a patient in the ER that needs to be hospitalized, but we can just give them an iPad and say, here, we're going to send a nurse to see you twice a day and a doctor is going to be following along. And if you need anything, just uh, press these buttons on this tablet and uh, you'll be able to summon a care team 24-7. That kind of being able to give them a tablet and expect them to know how to use it, 
uh, that might be the, the thing that really uh, catapults hospital at home into widespread use. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, I can also see so many challenges that we worry about, you know, are the home conditions right, you know, lawsuits, you know, the, all, the, all the traditional sort of bureaucracy that gets in the way. But I'm hopeful because, I mean, we saw so much change with the pandemic in terms of telehealth adoption. So who knows, maybe there's a pandemic bump that a hospital for home gets. Yeah, in, in, in addition to just relaxing the standards for the criteria for who qualifies for hospital at home, I think people are really scared to come into the hospital still. And, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a year since the pandemic, but we, for, for years before the pandemic, we would say, you know, when you're hospitalized, you're at risk of like nosocomial infections, you know, uh, hospital-acquired infections. And it was like a academic theoretical risk, but now it's like very clear in patients' minds that like, yeah, if I stay here, I could actually get much sicker. Uh, and there was always a risk of deconditioning too. But uh, so I, I really do think patients are even more motivated to kind of stay out of the hospital. Yeah. You know, so now all that is in the past. Um, I guess let's talk a little bit about what needs to happen. And now that we're seeing some sort of industry interest in healthcare transformation, will there be perhaps new entrants who can like disrupt the field a little bit? You know, back to uh, Clay Christensen, who we started with, you know, he defines um, disruptive innovation as the process in which a small company, usually with like fewer resources, is able to challenge an established business incumbents by entering at the bottom of the market and continuing to move uh, up market. Yeah, you know, it's funny because so many of these hospital at home programs have turned to startups to help get them up and running. Like uh, I'm thinking of Contessa, Vivify. These are startups that are offering evidence-based protocols. They're offering like the 24-7 monitoring. They're offering the tablets and the, the telemedicine functionality. And think about it, there's nothing in that package that the hospitals themselves probably couldn't do if they wanted to themselves. But uh, for some reason, the hospitals get a lot of comfort in kind of outsourcing this expertise and this uh, evidence-based protocols and, and this monitoring. It's it maybe not something they can do. But it makes me wonder who will decide first that the other partner is unnecessary for growth. Will the hospitals realize that they can do what the startups are offering or will the startups realize that they just need uh, their own source of staff and maybe their own source of patients, and then they could do it themselves and really grow and take off. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, we're seeing the same move in, in telehealth where a lot of these big players like, you know, Teladoc and Anvil, I mean, they're they're becoming providers themselves. So they're, you know, yeah. more yeah. and more of that provider base. So it's it's interesting. And, you know, maybe not to get too philosophical, but, you know, the hospitals as the incumbents have you know, have not really shown a willingness to invest in things that are creative. There's a lot of success in the rinse and repeat kind of model that they have. So why change? So I think that's gotten a little bit in their way as well. So um, anyway, but now we get to that part of uh, our, our discussion where it's prediction time, you know. So I'll, I'll go first, Nick, in terms of, you know, what we think is going to happen to this industry, especially as it comes to hospital at home. And, you know, we're sitting in 2021, you know, there's no conversation that happens uh, without mentioning some of the big players in this space. So you think about, you know, like industry players like Amazon and Uber, who may want to get into this, you know, they, um, they, they have a fleet of people, you know, they have good supply chain logistics and so on. Why wouldn't they just, you know, 
want to hire an, an army of people who are able to uh, offer these services. You know, at a, at a more sort of granular granular level, though, you know, kind of like when you mentioned Vivify and um, and Contessa. So one of the uh, companies that has caught my attention is uh, this company called Dispatch Health. They're based in Denver, and they operate like hundreds of paramedic vehicles with on-call remote medical professionals ready to provide emergency care. I think they've expanded to cities such as Seattle, Phoenix, Vegas, and uh, maybe there's maybe there's hope there that the startup community will will come up with some ideas. Yeah, I I think you're right, and um, you know, even so, I went looking for stats about just how many patients are even hospitalized at home or hospitalized in the U.S. Period, and in a non-pandemic year, I think uh, 35, 36 million or so was uh, was the the last stat I could find. So even if we get to Australia's level of hospital at home, and right now there's just pockets of innovation, Mayo, Sinai, other places where it's 500 patients here, 1,000 patients there. But even if we get to Australian levels of hospital at home utilization, it's still going to only add up to a couple million per year. And it'll be you know a few conditions, uh, but, but the vast majority of patients are still going to end up hospitalized in the hospital. So when you're talking about real like disruptive kind of growth, I, I think you're right that something like Dispatch Health or its community paramedicine programs, that's that's where we're going to see a lot of progress. It, it's going to be about keeping patients out of the ER more than sending patients from the ER back to their homes as a, a like with the extra monitor. So I, I am I'm very curious about this Dispatch Health model, and I look uh, look forward to learning more about it. Any uh, yeah, any final thoughts? No, we'll we'll keep it. It's it's, it's an interesting space. Uh, you know, we we on this podcast we talk a lot about telehealth, remote patient monitoring, and things that are we're bullish about. So, we'll we'll keep an eye on this. Yeah, but uh, important to never overlook uh, the human element and uh, the home element. There's a lot of value in sending people to patients' homes. All right, take care, Nick. That's it for this week. Join us again next time on Digital Health Unfiltered. Please note that the views presented in this podcast are not to be construed as the views of Mount Sinai Health System or the Hospital for Special Surgery or any of its affiliates.